the Tech Canada Leadership Standard, hosted by Tech Speaker of the Year and branding expert, Gare Maxwell. Real life stories from leaders spanning the business spectrum. Now more than ever, leaders are shifting through significant decisions under accelerated timeframes with less information and bigger consequences for their companies, for their people, and for the communities that they live in. You're about to learn of the triumphs, failures, struggles, and disruptions through the first-hand account of an industry leader. Join us now for the Leadership Standard. He's a neuroscientist and world-renowned expert in the study of perception. His research explores ways in which we experience the world through our own versions of reality. Cirque du Soleil, Microsoft, L'Oreal, just some of the brands that he's worked with for developing science-backed insights into consumer behavior. By illuminating these principles of perception, he's helped individuals and companies transform uh, their approach to creativity and innovation. He's a three-time main stage uh, TED speaker, also the founder of the world's first neuro design studio the lab of misfits we're going to talk about that best-selling author his latest book is deviate the science of seeing things differently he's spoken at the g8 google zeitgeist wired the oslo freedom forum contributed to the bbc the national geographic netflix and pbs and we are so fortunate to have him here on the Leadership Standard. Hello and welcome to you, uh, Dr. <laughs> Bo Lotto. Uh, it's great to be here. Thank you for the invitation. Well, Bo, you said earlier, just before we started here, that you are vagabonding. You have no yeah. fixed address. Your work <laughs> is around embracing uncertainty. And I, I thought that'd be as good a place as any. So you're joining us from Budapest, that area. Yeah. Yeah, While Budapest. you're vagabonding, what's the story? Well, so, well, the reason why I'm in Budapest, I've been here for a few weeks, is that we're uh, building a school here, a new yeah. high school, and we, which we, we can talk about. But the, the question about being a vagabond, so um, we study myself, I've been studying the, the, how the brain deals with uncertainty, not just as deals with it, but thrives because of it. I think it's a very important distinction, right? Uh, and because of that, I think it's important. I always believe in being a trope. You have to be the thing you talk about. So I packed up when the first lockdown, actually first lockdown in the UK, packed up the, packed up the whole flat in New York, put it all into storage, gave it all up, moved everything into a single duffel bag and drove across America and, and started talking to people about how they're dealing with uncertainty. Um, and then I cycled down the West coast of the States, 1500 kilometers, drove back across America, then over to Britain. And I've been sort of in movement ever since. But all along the way, it's about trying to better understand um, uh, the principles that people are applying to their own lives uh, when, when they're facing what, what, what we've evolved to, evolve, uh, to avoid, which is uncertainty. Oh, which begs the question now, I can't imagine what you've picked up in your travels since the pandemic with all of this mm. vagabonding uh, about how people are dealing with uncertainty and how we should deal with uncertainty. Yeah, I mean, that's, the, I mean, uh, the, the fundamental problem that our brain evolved to solve is uncertainty. Almost every single behavior we do is usually almost exclusively an attempt to decrease uncertainty. 
and I can give you lots of different examples and, and we, and we will, but the, what the awful uh, thing of COVID is many things, but one of the things that it's done is it's revealed to people what was always implicit. It's made it explicit, this fear of uncertainty. And when we experience uncertainty, which we, we do all the time, in fact, um, we experience it through the brain of our ancestors. And in that moment during evolution, your ancestors but would have been in a moment of increased death, possibility of death, which is one of the reasons why our brain then goes to panic, right? Because when we panic, we think, well, this is terrible. I mean, I don't want to be here. I'd be anywhere else but here. It's an attempt to increase certainty. So almost every successful company is successful because they decrease uncertainty. I mean, consider Uber. One of the reasons why Uber is successful, it's not simply because they enable you to get a taxi easier, faster, it's because they tell you when the taxi is going to arrive, right? Think of the graphic design of any text uh, messaging platform. Almost every element is there to decrease uncertainty. Are, is the other person online? Are they typing, right? Um, did they see my message? Did my message go out? It's all about decreasing uncertainty. So are there, are there any fresh insights, uh, Bo, that you've picked up since the pandemic about how humans are coping with all this? Well, one of the things that, that I picked up, um, which maybe is, can be quite obvious in some sense, but that uh, is just the awareness, of its, uh, the awareness of uncertainty itself and how much of our lives uh, is an attempt to engineer a world both personal, professionally, and corporate business to deal with that uncertainty, to try to create as a predictable life as possible in some sense. And as a consequence, uh, when we face uncertainty, we're not ready for it. We're not ready to adapt. And yet the most successful systems in nature are the ones that adapt. That's not, they don't just adapt, they're actually adaptable, right? And what's required to become adaptable I want to dig into the book a little bit, deviate the science yeah. of seeing differently. So someone watching right now or listening right now on the different platforms that we carry the leadership standard on, how would you explain the book? What was fascinating about writing the book? And typically I, the authors that I've spoken to, they tell me often that uh, the book winds up teaching them some things they didn't know going in. Well, that's, that's, I think almost always true in some sense in that the process of writing is a process of discovery, often self-discovery. Uh, you don't necessarily know where you're going to end up. Uh, and in the case of Deviate, the aim there was to help people not shift their perception because it would be arrogant of me to assume that people should shift their perception. But I think we can all expand our perceptions. And in fact, it's essential that we expand our perceptions. So deviate is actually the process of not, uh, it not only explains the power of perception and how perception underpins everything it is to be you, but it also the necessity to expand that perception. And in fact, the sequence in which I take people through in deviate is the sequence of expanding perception itself. In this case, I'm trying to get people to expand their perception of perception. And, and in that context, uh... Bo, I'm going to make a leap of logic here that 
for leaders, especially people leading small, medium-sized companies, people who tend to listen to or watch this particular program, leaders in particular, what should they know about uh, their role in expanding perception? Many. Um, so where do we start when it comes with leaders? Well, first of all, uh, what defines a good leader is, is how you lead others into uncertainty, right? Uh, and what is, there are a number of things that are essential to that. One is to become perceptually intelligent. And the, um, in other words, to better understand how and why you see what you do in order to help other people expand their perception because that's not possible otherwise. Um, the the uh, leaders, I call it the host effect. You know, when we go to a dinner party, right? And the quality of the party is often a function of the personality of the host. If the host is really quiet and all this, the whole party is quiet, right? And if the host is very exuberant, the whole party is exuberant. It's because your brain is contagious, right? And the host infects the party with their personality. So we know, for instance, that the most open companies are led by the most open CEOs, the most open leaders. The um, adaptability is very infectious if you're a leader, right? And so we also know that how leaders can actually create that space that enables others to expand their perception. You know, I can't help, I'm listening to you and I'm wondering, where did you start to stumble onto this? What was your Ben Franklin moment with the key and the in the lightning storm and the and the kite? Where was there an aha moment when you were maybe a young person, Bo, and discovered something about perception and saw things that maybe others did not? Well, actually, um, it always feels like there's an aha moment, but I think it's in fact always a progression. In fact, I'm still in that progression. Um, and what I was have always been interested in is the fact that the brain is adaptable, that it changes according to its experience, that it's a function of experience. Your brain is physically a manifestation of that past interaction with the world. So I've always been fascinated about how your brain's like a muscle. You use it or you lose it. Um, a more complex brain represents a more complex interaction with this environment. If you have a very deprived environment, you have a very deprived brain. So I've studied the cellular mechanisms by which the brain adapts, um, the computational principles by which it adapts. Perception is the consequence of looking at the world through an adapting brain. You're actually seeing the consequences of adapting. In fact, sometimes you're seeing the adaptation in front of you, right? Um, and so the power of perception is that when you explore perception with others and you give them the sense that everything they do all their behaviors are grounded in perception. Behavioral change begins with perceptual change. As soon as you give people that awareness, suddenly they have agency to see differently. So is there a way we could, I, I'm just, it just hit me in the moment. Uh, is there a way we could orchestrate something uh, right now on this podcast? So I've watched your, some of your TED talks and some of your other speaking performances. And it seems as though, uh, you have this uncanny ability to make that magic happen before a live studio audience to help us see things differently. I'm, I'm well, what I'm saying, I'm willing to be your test subject on however you want to take this, because I think it would be fascinating for folks to see a, a, a demonstration of theory in action. 
of theory, of theory and action. Um, well, um, well, actually, um, we can actually get people for the image that's up there right now. Yes. I wonder if this. I wonder if we can get people to do it because there will be some people who are watching this, right? That's right. It's, yeah. Thanks to YouTube. Okay. So we will. Um, we will. If we get people, what, what this, what we have up there right now on the screen for those who aren't watching but are listening, we have two desert scenes, and they look exactly the same because, in fact, they are. Um, and then what we have are a red square and a green square sitting next to each other. So what the people who are watching, what I want them to do is to stare, and you can do this as well, stare at the dot between the red and the green. Right. And don't, don't look anywhere else. Just stare okay. at that dot. Right. Um, and we're going to do that for about 20 seconds or something like that. And while you're doing this, I'm going to tell you what's happening inside your brain. Your brain is learning. Okay. Oh, we need that screen back up. Oh, that, that, sorry, Bo, that video moved on because that was part of your live show. But <laughs> I see. So, All right. so if I, if I kept focused on that dot between the red and the green. So if you kept focused on that dot, what would happen is your brain is redefining normality. And okay. then when you would look down back to those desert scenes, they would now look different. The desert scenes would look different. They would look different, even though they're still physically the same. So everyone watching or listening, you've got to go and see Bo's uh, promo video from, uh, what was the Speakers Bureau? I think it was the... That was the I, Power, I, Powerful You uh, meeting. Um, yeah. But maybe I can give you, can I give you a sonic example? I'd love to, exactly. That's what I was, that's why we were so looking forward to having you because we could do... We, we, if we can do it sonically, that'd be even better. Okay, so I'm gonna have to, I'm very sorry, but I'm gonna have to put on a speaker here. So let's see if we can okay. get this to work because we're doing this, we're doing this improv here. All right, so let's see if I can get the sound coming through here. Which I know, Bo, you'll appreciate if, if you and I are gonna talk about embracing uncertainty, we, we can't have this all staged and rehearsed. <laughs> That's right, isn't that true? All right, let's see if I can get this to work. All right, so. Let's see if the sound's now coming through there. Now, so I'm, what I'm going to do is I'm going to play people a soundtrack. Okay. 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 And they're going to probably hear nothing meaningful in it. Okay. So. Okay. Do you hear anything meaningful? Nothing. Okay. It sounds like the record's sounds being played back, backwards. Well, okay. Very good. Good. Very good guess. Now, the, what's the point of what I want to make here? I'm going to, I'm going to suggest something to you. Okay. okay? Yeah. Now, what this is, is the demonstration that what we perceive is not the history of what things turned out to be because we have no access to the world. Instead, it's the history of what you perceived before. So I'm going to give you a very, um, a new history. And I'm going to suggest the, the idea of it's fun to smoke marijuana. Okay. okay, now listen okay. to it, listen to it again. And that's, that's... Can you hear it? Oh, can I hear oh, can it? I hear it. I can't unhear it. So <laughs> that's the point. So that's the exact same audio track you played. Exactly. That's the exact same audio track that I just played. And and so now what you're hearing, are you getting, were you getting better at hearing it? Oh, very much so. And, and, and you, because you implanted it, the brain then responds and hears it. 
the hearing, but what's more is it gets hearing it better and better and better. Why? Because you're perceiving the history of what you perceived before, none of which even existed. What is that? What is that sound? It's this played backwards. Right? So that's what the actual song was. Another one bites the dust played backwards. So it didn't actually exist. So the point is that our perception is grounded in history. Remember, perception underpins everything it is to be you. And what your perception represents are the assumptions and biases that come from your history. And a lot of it isn't even your history. It could be the history of your family, the history of your culture, or your, or your, your company's history, right? Or your evolutionary history. So most of your life happened without you even there. So you have all these assumptions and biases inside you. And we perceive the world through these assumptions and biases. Right? And I, in only a few seconds, I gave you a history that forever changed your perception of that sound string. Imagine what's possible in all aspects of your life. And it's by becoming aware of this, it's so essential for leaders to know that themselves, as well as the people they're leading, are perceiving the world in this way. So as I formulate the next question based on what I've just learned about uh, another one bites the dust, I can't help but ask how much of our brain represents untapped potential? I've heard different theories on this, Bo, but I've never actually asked someone like yourself who studies this for a living. Well, people do come up with numbers and these numbers to me are... Um... <laughs> they're very difficult to prove in any, any real sense, mm -hmm. but we seem to have tremendous untapped capacity. What our brain is constantly doing is organizing and reorganizing itself. And that's what's essential. What's essential about our brain is that it's plastic, it's adaptable. We've evolved to evolve, we're adapted to adapt. We're constantly redefining normality and we see everything relative to that new normal. And the reason is because the world changes. Right. So, so much of business and so many, so much of business organizations is predicated on the idea of efficiency. Right. And, and that's not a bad idea. Of course, you, you want to be as efficient as possible. And it's a brilliant idea if it weren't for the fact that the world changes. Right. But as soon as the world changes, now you actually have to adapt to it. The problem is businesses will try to make themselves even more and more efficient. They'll get rid of people, et cetera or they'll buy inefficiency, when in fact, what they have to do is embrace creativity. But the framework, the ecology for creativity is very different from the ecology that's necessary for efficiency. What's great for efficiency is competition. It's a great way to maximize efficiency, but it's a very bad way to enable creativity. And what leaders need to do is to be able to be innovative, which means they have to balance both efficiency and creativity. Because if a bus is coming at you, it's not like you want to say, oh, I wonder if I could see this differently. No, you want to get out of the way as fast as possible, right? The problem is we live life as if everything's a bus. It's knowing when to be on one side of the edge of chaos on the other. And that's the power of the leader is creating that environment that enables us to become adaptable, to use that capacity of our brain to be plastic, to maximize that capacity. I want to circle back, Bo, because I am fascinated at a very personal level 
I'm curious, when did all this start for you? I'd like to know more about your own journey. Were you seven years old? Were you 11 years old? Like, what was your earliest memory of even thinking like this? <laughs> it's, a, it's a great question. Um, I think it, I was very fortunate in, of course, in that uh, the environment that I was raised in was an environment of possibility, was an environment that celebrated adapting, being adaptable, being creative. So I remember times when my mom and I would go out on the deck and she said, so what are we going to invent today? Right. And then we would just invent. There were times because also, also there, you know, there were money problems, et cetera. And we'd say like, well, the deck is falling apart. We need to build a deck. So my mom would just get the wood and I would be six years old with a hammer and a saw and we would build the deck. No idea how to build a deck, but we would figure it out. Right? So there's also necessity within creativity as well. But what's powerful about that is that there was trust and there was belief that it was possible because the phrase was, what's the worst that could go wrong? And if you can deal with the worst, then why not do it? Sorry, well, I, I'm just hearing some powerful leadership lessons from your parents Absolutely. that would that would apply Absolutely. to anyone today. Absolutely. Another phrase that I grew up with was walk through life with a tilt. So this is why you know, when my mom dies, you know, her gravestone is going to be tilted. Why? Because she says, you know, life is like walking into the wind. And if you walk straight up, you're going to get blown over. You got to lean into the wind. And then you lean in, in this case, through humor. Right? Why? Because there is one way in which the brain loves uncertainty. There's only one. So if you think for yourself, for the people who are listening or watching, what is the one place where you actually love uncertainty? It's not that you tolerate it, you cope with it, you actually seek it out. What is that one thing? What would be that one thing for you? It's one word, but it defines a whole class of behaviors. You're Can asking you me? Yeah, I'm asking you. Oh, what I would say, I, I, I've got it. I have I, the I, sense I, that you embody it. Yeah, I, I would say golf. To ah, me, okay. golf, Bo, is complete uncertainty <laughs> because you, it's still to this day. Okay, but it's still... <laughs> You can hit a magnificent shot in golf. And I mean, purely magnificent, whether it's chipping on the green or driving it right down the fairway. And that's the moment that you think you've got the game mastered. <laughs> yeah. And then the absolutely. next shot is so humbling. And in that, I find you've got to embrace the wisdom of uncertainty. Yeah. And what's more, you want to, right? So what is golf? Golf is play. Play is evolution, solution, uncertainty. It's why play evolved, right? Play is a state of the mind. It's literally a brain state. Now, play by itself, in, in, inherent in play is having no intention. If you had intention to play, you have science. You have everything that is creative is play with intention, right? And play and, and play with intention, science, for instance, it embraces uncertainty, possibility, it creates possibility. It's inherently collaborative. And it's actually what we call intrinsically motivating. What's the reward for play? It's play. What's the reward for golf? It's golf, right? So, 
Our brain evolved to have these intrinsic rewards. Evolution gave us these things. Why? Intrinsic rewards are evolution saying, you better do more of this. This is good for you, right? As opposed to extrinsic rewards. Extrinsic rewards are things like money. Now they're very motivating, but as soon as you eliminate the extrinsic reward, you extinguish the behavior. And so often leaders, for instance, they try to do a carrot through extrinsic rewards, when in fact, what they should be doing is facilitating intrinsic rewards. And this is what, for instance, my mom, my dad, and the people I was fortunate to be around fostered the desire to do the thing itself, which is often why when I work with leaders, one of the most important aspects of them is that they care. And in particular, that they care for something larger than themselves. Because it's in the pursuit of that care, often in, in brands, they might call it a purpose, a brand purpose, which unless it's authentic, it's just a slogan. Mm -hmm. But when you truly embrace that, we know that when you pursue a purpose, it will carry you through the hardest times. In my lab, we actually subject people to pain, not pain that damages them, but we'll subject them to pain. Now, when we then compare people who are subjected to pain that where that the reward is extrinsic and for themselves, they will withstand the pain far less than when the reward is intrinsic and in service of people beyond themselves. Right? So when they are truly authentic and pursuing something larger than themselves, that is super powerful. And they need to in, in, inspire that in the people that they're also leading. Which brings us to a critical question as we, you know, one of the real privileges of, of this podcast is the chance to just discuss and, and, and debate and uh, uh talk about leadership in all of its many forms. But one question we always ask, Bo, and I'm interested to keenly interested to hear how you unpack the answer is how would you define leadership? Hmm. How I would define leadership. Um, well, I actually have um, effectively a number of principles that leaders need to embody truly embody in order to enable themselves to be adaptable and to create spaces in which they're adaptable. So for instance, they have to care. They have to have the courage to not know. Leadership is not about knowing, it's about not knowing and creating space because nothing interesting begins with knowing. It begins with not knowing, which is why when I do my talks, I almost always start with, I want people to know less at the end than they think they know at the beginning because nothing interesting literally begins with knowing. It always begins with not knowing. So they have to care. They have to have the courage to, and the humility to not know, right? They also have to have that compassion. They have to have the curiosity and the commitment, right? Um, and we also know that there are three qualities of leader that are associated with the success of any one company. Lead by example, admit mistakes and see qualities in others. Why? Because lead by example is a space that creates trust. And you can't play in a space that isn't trusting. You're not going to ask questions. You're not going to doubt. You're not going to explore in a space that's competitive, but you will in a space that's trusted. To admit mistakes is a space that celebrates uncertainty. It's saying not knowing is good here. 
right? And then uh, um, uh, to see qualities in others is a space that celebrates diversity. And not just diversity, we often focus on diversity in companies and organizations. It's very important. It's the, it's the engine of evolution itself. But what's often missed out is the importance of integration, integration across that diversity. Often what we do with integration is try every, get, get conformity. But what you want is that integration across the diversity, and that's what creates a resilient system. So leaders that lead by example admit mistakes and see qualities in others. But in order to do so, they have to deeply care and have that courage and humility to step into the uncertainty because that is what will be contagious onto the people around them. They are the hosts. They have to embody these things. It's not just talking about it. They have to live it. You know, one of the things I'm really enjoying about our conversation, Bo, is you actually embody uh, this particular photograph that I picked up off of a, a CNN uh, broadcast neuroscientist and artist. It's that balance between efficiencies and creativity that we talked about earlier. When you look at and with your uh, ability to perceive, when you look at people in leadership posi leadership positions, whether they run a company or they're high level senior executives, what do you think in your view? What's the most common reason why people in leadership roles struggle or, or sometimes fail? Because they think they're supposed to have the answers, right? When in fact, what they're trying, they should be trying to do is create an environment for others to discover the answers, right? So, and a lot of this has to do with how they enable, how they themselves and how they enable conflict and how they manage conflict. So the best leaders, in my view, create an environment where actually conflict is a beautiful thing. It might seem a contradiction, right? But it's actually only in conflict that your brain can, can learn, literally, right? The problem is not conflict. The problem is how we enter conflict in the first place. So if you and I are in conflict, what usually happens is, is it's as if we're on opposite ends of the same line. Right? And I try to prove that you're wrong and to shift me towards you, but you're trying to do exactly the opposite. You're trying to prove that I'm wrong and shift me towards you. Right? So it's as if we're set up to win but not learn because you only ever learn when you move. And so when that, we get in that situation, I don't want to move, you don't want to move. And now if I tie my identity to the thing that we're talking about, well, now to move means I have to doubt my whole self. Well, there's, that's the last thing I'm going to do. Then we have to enter in what we call conflict resolution because we'll go into what we call the four horsemen, mm -hmm. where you go into um, defensiveness, ridicule, stonewalling, right? And, and so, we'll, you know, the more enlightened will say, well, let's go into conflict resolution now. Let's be more sort of amicable. Let's be collaborative, right? Um, let's be agreeable. What you're trying to do is diffuse the tension. And, and gets consensus, but notice that you don't necessarily reach understanding. So the problem is not conflict, the problem is how you enter it. So the best leaders, what they do is they enter conflict with a question, not with an answer. They enter conflict with uncertainty, not with certainty. They enter conflict with the desire not to validate, but to understand. And when you reach understanding, 
you actually achieve more adaptability. Because what, when you have understanding, it means you understand the principles of things, which means you're more likely to be able to adapt to unforeseen circumstances. The reward for that is optimism. You will have a more optimistic brain because evolution said, that's a good idea. Let's give them that as an intrinsic reward. And now your whole organization will become adaptable. The people who you lead will be adaptable. Right? It's a much more positive, thriving, complex environment that you'll create. And it begins with the leader and the ecology that they create for others. I think, Bo, that anyone listening to you who's also fascinated by the ever-evolving science and art of leadership would like to know more about your own personal leadership journey. In other words, other than mom and dad and immediate family, <laughs> who were your influences and mentors you know, on, on, on your uh, journey through this uh, leadership maze? Yeah, um, uh, most of them were teachers. And the best teachers are not teachers. The best teachers are mentors, in my view. Um, in fact, the school that we're creating here in Budapest, all the teachers will be mentors. And so those mentors were my sixth grade teacher, Mr. Groom, um, who had a combination of discipline and humor. He wasn't just funny, but he was strong, right? And he demanded, he had expectations. But he also had balance, he had, he had judgment, and he had humor as well. So it was that combination. We had Mrs. Stuber, my science teacher, right? I was rubbish in every subject except for science, right? Um, and soccer, not that that was a subject, right? Um, and so, but she was, she was inspirational, right? She was discovering with us. Right? You had that sense of co-creation, co-discovery. Um, and then we had Marion Diamond. And Marion Diamond uh, was my mentor uh, when I was at Berkeley as an undergraduate many years ago. And Marion Diamond uh, was, a again, she embodied all these things. Again, this is about embodiment. You, you have to live this. You can't get your employees to come in and become creative when they walk through the door. You can't switch this on. This is something you do every day with your partner, with your children. You know, every day is an opportunity to practice these skills because life is a practice. It's, the brain's not you know, like a muscle. It's not like you, you go into the gym once, you do it once, you say, oh, brilliant, sorted. I'm now in shape for the rest of my life. For some reason, we think we can do that for the brain. No, you practice this all the time. And Marion Diamond was she studied how the brain adapts to the complexity of its world. So she was one of the first people to do research on rats and enriched in deprived environments. Um, but she was a true mentor. And then of course I had my, my, my postgraduate mentors like Dale Purvis, who again was constantly in the process of discovery and seeking understanding and embodying it. They, they say, they, whoever they are, I'm sure you, in your vagabonding travels, you've heard that famous, you know, word, they, they say there's yeah. no better teacher than failure. Is oh, there yeah. something you have <laughs> failed at that you look All back and say, that has been incredibly valuable on my journey? I'd say that every failure is that and I don't believe in this concept of fail forward and all this kind of stuff that you know that Silicon Valley likes to embrace no failure is failure it hurts right that's kind of the point 
right? It's evolution saying, yeah, what should we do now? Um, right? It's supposed to, in my view. The trick is actually, it's, it's, um, it's, of course, what you take from the failure. So I also do lots of, I work, in, uh, I support people. I do call what are called one-on-ones. So I work with people with very strong traumas. And my point is not to let it go, not to ignore it, it's to incorporate it into your life and to expand from it. So yes, I've had many failures. I, I'm a founder and CEO of two startups. And you know, we had lots of challenges along the way with my own children, with uh, romantic relationships. I mean, my issue is that I love the process of understanding. So I have kind of a dual schizophrenic experience when I fail, which is on the one hand, I feel devastated sometimes, awful, rubbish. On the other hand, I sometimes get, I also feel tremendous excitement because now I see I have an opportunity. And we know, for instance, in terms of leadership, it's not whether or not you, you feel the devastation because you should. It's not whether or not you feel the pain, you should. It's how quickly you can re- bounce back from that and bounce back better. It's not in ignoring it. So I don't believe in a lot of uh, um, this measurement of optimism uh, that some positive psychologists uh, get engaged in. And we know that optimistic is a very powerful on your, your life's journey and correlated with wealth and longevity, et cetera. But when we measure often, when people measure optimism, often what they find is that people respond completely opposite when good things happen to their life versus bad things. So when good things happen to your life, people will say, well, it's going to last forever. It's going to affect the whole of my life. And it's because of me. Right. But when something bad happens, they say it's going to be short-lived. It's not going to affect my life. And it's, well, it's because of you anyway, it has nothing to do with me. Well, why wouldn't you be optimistic? You're taking all the credit for the good and no blame for the bad. Right. Which makes one of our recent leaders, the ultimate optimist. Right? But we see what happens when we engage with the world with that kind of optimism, when in fact we should be more realistic and become aware and self-aware of what we did that contributed to that failure, because that's the thing you have control over. It's not about blame. It's about discovering what were the assumptions and biases that led to this situation occurring and now you have an opportunity, only becoming perceptually well, that you have the possibility of changing that. I, I want to explore something, uh, Bo, that comes directly from your sporting background. Now, you confessed to being a big soccer fan and in particular, a fan of Pele. But yeah. from my home base in London, Ontario, I want to take you an hour down the road And before that backyard had a swimming pool, it had a skating (laughs) rink. So an hour from my front door is 42 Verity Avenue, the home of Wayne Gretzky. And that's where Wayne learned, you know, um, his wizardry. He, it was said he had a superpower, eyes in the back of his head. The gift was anticipation. Yeah. I'm building this up, Bo, because I just love to hear your thoughts on this because you singled out hockey. For whatever reason. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. And I'm curious to know why the world traveler singles out hockey. And also, supplementary question is how relevant is the Gretzky quote in the face of so much uncertainty? Skate to where the puck is going to go, not to where it's been. 
Yeah. Okay. So what hockey, because hockey has everything, right? It's a complex sport. I mean, it just has everything. It has the pace, tremendous skill, the physicality, the intelligence, the teamwork, the anticipation, but not just the anticipation yourself or the pot of, or the puck. It's not only anticipating where the puck's going to be, it's where someone else is going to put that puck, right? So it has all these things. Football, soccer has a lot of them, but it's diminished in some sense. And so it's the complexity of the sport that I love about hockey, right? And that re results in a complex mind. So it's no and, wonder and they're in some doing sense. It at, and they're doing it at such high speed. At, at such, tremendous, right? At such right. high speed. I mean, as an observer, you can't even you can't even see the puck, and yet they're they're not even not they're not only seeing it, they're anticipating doing remarkable uh, <laughs> tricks and skills with it. So skate to where the puck is going to be. So what what Wayne Gretzky is quoting there is effectively the aim of evolution as far as the human brain is concerned. During evolution, the better you able to predict, the more likely you could survive. Systems that can't predict got selected out. So our brain is constantly trying to predict. Our brain evolved to take what is uncertain and make it certain, to take what is unsure and make it sure, right? We're always trying to predict. And that's where our, those assumptions and biases come in. So he's constantly predicting, but he's having to predict from multiple variables simultaneously, right? And that's music, that's, that's beauty, right? But also that need to predict is also one of the reasons why we hate uncertainty. Because if you couldn't predict, you died, which means when you're in uncertainty, you're now in that moment that our ancestors were literally facing death which is why our cortisol levels escalate, right? Which is why we often will, as I mentioned, go to panic, right? Which is why we had panic buying of toilet paper and in the US of guns, right? Because people are trying to do anything to get that sense of predictability, that sense of uncertainty, as opposed to being able to just sit with it. Because I can also imagine someone like Wayne Gretzky is also able to sit with that moment of uncertainty and he also probably knows when not to predict, right? So I use skateboarders as an example. So my two of my sons are skateboarders, you know, they're great. And if you go to a skateboard, park, I love skateboard parks. The, the mentality, the camaraderie, the support of the, of the children in skateboard parks is brilliant, right? But if you watch them, they almost never complete a trick. They're almost constantly failing. And so I said, Theo, we have to quantify this. So we went to a skateboard park and we counted it. For every, and only there was a 25% success rate. 75% of the time they're failing, right? And yet they're not crashing. I was like, well, that's odd because they're almost always failing and yet they're not falling on their face. Why is this? And it's because they're becoming experts at failure. They're learning exactly when to break out of a trick before they crash. And what they're doing is they're pushing the boundaries of failure. They're not trying to succeed. They're trying to push their boundaries of failure. And that boundary goes far further and further and starts including tricks. Because notice, as soon as they complete a trick, they stop. They're now pursuing failure again. So it's that pursuit of failure and becoming brilliant at failures that enables them to become successful, ironically. 
So if you're going to do, I mean, you, you look like you, you love free running where you're jumping from building to building to building. Well, when you learn how to do that, your first lesson is not how to jump, it's how to fall. Because you're not going to attempt the jump if you don't have that sense that you can fail. Right? And this is coming back to the very beginning is what I learned from my mom and dad, that you survive when you fall. Most of the time. All right. For the first time in the history of the leadership standard, we found out there was a correlation between experimentation, creativity, leadership, and skateboard parks. And we have you to thank, Bo. That's brilliant. I, I will they are never great see, leaders. But I will never see a skateboard park the same way ever again, knowing 75% of the time yeah. is that they're out there failing, but having fun while they do it. That's right. That's where the play comes in. And if you want to find brilliant leadership, go watch the older boys with the younger boys and girls, right? This tremendous support. They're leading by example. They're making mistakes. They're seeing quality in them, right? And the, the younger kids, boys and girls, they're also, they're not doing it for them. They have to do it. But there's someone there to be what I call the sandbar. A fundamental aspect of being a leader is being a sandbar. As I say to my kids, I'm not, I'm not your boat. I'm not going to take you to the other side. Why? Because you love swimming. But you're going to get tired. And you can come back and you can stand here. And you can rest. And then you'll swim again. And eventually you're going to get stronger. And you're going to swim to the other side. But I'm never going to let you drown. And that's what you see in the skateboard park. And that's where you see with brilliant leaders. That's what I saw with my teachers. They were sandbars. We're going to take a page uh, right out of the Bob Seeger playbook and turn the page. Bo Lotto, <laughs> up close and personal. Uh -oh. What are you curious about right now? Oh, what am I curious about right now? I'm curious about beauty at the moment. Okay. So uh, we, uh, one of the projects we're working on is what is beauty? And we're relating that to spaces that have vibe. What's a space that has a great vibe versus space that doesn't have a vibe? And how could you create those spaces? Now, this relates to, for instance, offices, because we're also working on office design, especially in this new time after post-pandemic. What do we do with this office space? People are really questioning. So we're, we're actually creating a whole new JV on office design that creates a vibe that enables people to actually thrive in office space. So what is it a space that has, has, is vibrating, has great vibration versus one that doesn't, and it has a lot to do with beauty. And then what is beauty? It's imperfection. But it's imperfection what? that enables movement. So that's it. What books is Bolato reading right now? Oh, let's see. Um, it's right over there. Let's see. Um, I'm reading about authenticity right now. I have about three books all about authenticity. Your all-time three greatest pieces of literature. All-time three greatest. Oh, <laughs> so one of them is a book entitled Go the Fuck to Sleep, um, which is a children's it was a book. Children's book. It was a children's book. I love that. My kids love that when I was reading that to them. 
Oh my goodness. <laughs> That's one of my favorite pieces of literature. My son used to read that to his, my grandson. Yeah. <laughs> I love that. Um, and it's not great literature, but I nope. love Terry. But the other one is Terry Pratchett. I love Terry Pratchett. And sadly he's died, but at the Discworld novels, English, English writer, hysterical, but actually deeply philosophical within the the humor and then i'd say for a number of reasons the brother um i mean just speaking off the top of my head here right is brothers karamazov dostoevsky uh wonderful wonderful book um so those would be and and it's also the time of my life when i read because for books for me are like they're precious i never give a book away and i keep them wherever i go because each one is a moment in my in, in, of history it's a it's not just a library it's a diary Let's just suppose, since I know you believe in possibilities, they're going to make a Hollywood's going to make a movie of your life. Who <laughs> do you want to play Bolato in your biopic? Oh dear, who do I want to play as Bolato in uh, my biopic? Um, God, I have no idea. Um, huh? I would love it to be an animation. I love animation because, because animation, you can actually visualize perception. You can visualize emotions. So for me, it would be an animated character. It would be an animation. What is your guilty pleasure? <laughs> guilty pleasure. Um, I have lots of pleasures, but not much guilt around them. So... <laughs> I'm not sure what my guilty pleasure would be. So it suggests as a pleasure that I don't, I don't, I don't feel good about. So that would suggest, well, I, I mean, for me, it's, it's um, tortilla chips because, you know, they're terrible for you, but you know, that's a, that's a guilty pleasure, but I have a lot of other pleasures that aren't, that I don't feel guilty about. Bo, we've got to now engage you. It, it's a bit of a tradition here at the Leadership Standard. It's We call it the Lipton Pivot Survey to honor the French journalist Bernard Pivot and uh, the host from inside the actor's studio, James Lipton. It's rapid fire. Next question for uh -oh. me. Here we go. Okay. What is your favorite word? My favorite word. Um, uh... Oh God, now you've got me. I'm looking around for words. Um, the, my favorite word, actually my favorite word, okay, I'm gonna be cliched. It's true actually, my favorite word and favorite thing is love, right? It's gonna be, now it's, it's, I feel. We gotta pick up the pace, Bo, ready? Okay, what, is your, what is your least favorite word? Least favorite word, um, hypocrisy. What turns you on? Ah, what turns me on? Um, what turns me on is courage. What turns you off? Certainty. What sound or noise do you love? Sound or noise that I love. Um, uh, okay, again, cliched, but the voice of my kids. What is your favorite curse word? Oh, shite. What profession other than your own would you like to attempt? Oh, if I could do it all over again, I'd be a dancer. What profession under no circumstances would you ever, ever do? What profession under no circumstances would I ever, ever do? Um, a prison guard. No, 
oh, I can't, let's see, what would I, something where you had to stand still and couldn't move in your mind or your body. I don't know what it is. The profession of, I don't know, a post. <laughs> if heaven exists, what would you like to hear our heavenly father say when you arrive at the pearly gates? Oh, um, I would, I would hope it, I don't know. I'd hope it'd be funny, whatever it was. Something that was a little bit, you know, a little bit English humor. What is your personal creed or motto? One of the things I've noticed, Bo, is that folks on leadership journeys making a difference in the world tend to have this catchphrase or this very significant uh, you know, five to 10 word statement they live their whole life by. What's yours? <laughs> so this is the actual statement, right? So it's going to sound like I'm not, it's the statement is, I don't know. I have a t-shirt. I have a tattoo right here <laughs> that says, I don't know. Um, and I've got a question mark. Um, so that's my, that's my motto is, I don't know. And before we wrap up, Given all the uncertainty in the world, given your travels and your insights and all the major companies and brands that you've worked with and the conferences you speak at, what is the number one question that leaders need to be asking right now? The number one question that leaders are asking now, um, it would be, am I honest? not with others, but with myself. I, when my uncle, before he went into a surgery, it was a life-threatening surgery, and I had a wonderful conversation with him uh, before, and I recorded it for about an hour. And I said, you know, what does it mean to be a good man, and by extension, a good person, right, in general, um, in your life? And he said it was the pursuit of self-honesty, and it's the hardest honesty to achieve. Bo, I know that folks listening and watching today have really thoroughly enjoyed this conversation. How, how can folks connect with you online? Where well, are we've got to go? Yeah. Yeah. So, well, we have uh, the Lab of Misfits website and it, our offering on that Lab of Misfits website is that we're now, we, we share with people our insights, but we also share with them experiments where they can discover and be part of discovery and also self-discovery. So we're running an experiment right now in optimism. So they can be part of that experiment and optimism. We also have, you know, the usual Instagram, um, both personal and the lab and Facebook and, and all these, but Instagram and our website and LinkedIn. So those are the things and that, um, and we're just releasing our, our podcast this, um, the, our first podcast this week on expanding perception. It's been a real delight. Um, and, and, and I, I'm hoping we didn't deviate too much from what we promised in this, uh, in this podcast. <laughs> Thanks so much, uh, Bo, for joining us here on the Leadership Standard. Thank you very much for the opportunity and invitation. It's been fun. Once again, we really want to uh, thank Bo Lotto, Dr. Bo Lotto, for joining us today. And if you want to know more about Tech Canada and its world-class programs, check out the website, www.techcanada.com. That's T-E-C-Canada.com. What was it that Bo spoke of today that made you stop, think, and reflect? I've got a page full of notes. Uh, enter conflict with a question. I thought that was uh, genius. How uncertainty has gone from being implicit in our lives to 
explicit, the courage uh, to not know because nothing interesting happens when you already know something. So there was just so much uh, that I think uh, Bo um, uh, shared with us today. But what was your biggest takeaway? Uh, feel free to share your thoughts as always. Uh, my personal email address is gare uh, at garemaxwell.com, G-A-I-R. Um, and if you enjoyed the Leadership Standard, uh, feel free to share with others in your online social networks. Like, subscribe, and madly share. Uh, because uh, this was uh, was was just a fabulous episode. Uh, because you just never know uh, something that Bo spoke of in our conversation just might inspire someone else to grab hold of the clutch and go full throttle in the new frontier. On behalf of everyone at Tech Canada and the Leadership Standard, thanks for listening.